welcome back to the Hotkey Podcast. I am your host, Isabel Taylor, and I'm excited to share another month of corona-safe content with you. This month, we will be hearing from Hotkey authors Holly Race and Kerry Drury about their new books, Midnight's Twins and The Last Paper Crane. Patrice Caldwell reads the very apt and important introduction that she wrote for A Phoenix First Must Burn. And our very own Amy Lambias will be speaking on a day in the life of a book marketeer, including career highlights and advice for anyone wishing to move into publishing. Plus, this month, we will be sharing with you an extract from Clap When You Land, read by its award-winning and best-selling author, Elizabeth Acevedo. Holly Race works as a development executive in the film and TV industry, most recently with Ardman Animations. She is a Faber Academy graduate, and Midnight's Twins is her debut novel, the first book in a lyrical, endlessly inventive urban fantasy trilogy about the dream world Anwin, a place as full of dangers as it is wonders, a place where dreams can kill you. This dark, Dangerous and dreamy book is perfect for fans of Cassandra Clare, Lev Grossman and Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Hi there, my name is Holly Race and I'm really pleased to be talking to you on the Hotkey podcast. I'm the author of Midnight's Twins, which is being published on June the 11th. It's my debut novel and it's the first in a trilogy. Midnight's Twins is a YA fantasy and it follows Fern who, for various very good reasons, doesn't like other people very much at all, especially her twin brother Ollie who she despises. Fern finds out quite early on that her mother who died when she was a baby may have been a warrior in a secret army who protect us from our nightmares because when we dream we go into an alternative world and if we're killed in our dreams or our nightmares then we die in real life as well we just don't wake up and Fern makes it her mission to find out what really happened to her mother 15 years ago and to follow in her mother's footsteps no matter the cost. I really got the idea for the world because I've always had really really vivid nightmares the kind where you wake up and your heart's pounding and it takes you a while to go no no it's okay you're safe it was just a nightmare you're awake now Um, When I was 16, I think, I dreamt that my village was overrun by werewolves and I woke up at about 4am and I was absolutely convinced that there was a werewolf underneath my bed, that it had killed my parents and my dog and if I left the safety of my duvet then I would also be torn to shreds (laughs) and it took me ages to rationalize what had happened that was actually just a nightmare and that I was awake now and that I was not in mortal danger but I couldn't get back to sleep that night and I think it took me a while to get to sleep the following night as well actually but I've always had nightmares like that really vivid visceral nightmares every couple of months for as long as I can remember and it got me wondering what happened if there was genuine danger then what what if the werewolf had killed me and I just hadn't woken up and that's really the the kind of starting point for for Midnight's Twins and, and the world that Fern finds herself in. But that was the only thing that I really had in place for quite a while. I spent a long time being silly and writing the books that I thought people would want to read, that I thought would be commercial. So for about three years, my protagonist was a nine-year-old boy because, oh, Harry Potter is quite popular. I should maybe write something like that, which was really silly. And it didn't work because I just wasn't interested in the character at all. 
it's only when Fern popped into my head that everything else started to fall into place. And she's she's amazing. She's really damaged and she's put up all of these barriers around herself and she's absolutely convinced herself that she doesn't need anyone else. She doesn't need friendship. She doesn't need affection. She is fine on her own doing her own thing. But actually underneath it all, she's very pure and desperate to have someone to lean on. And I think I really related to her most of all because she's a very socially awkward teenager and I was quite a socially awkward teenager and I'm a fairly socially awkward adult so I really relate to that and I think probably a lot of people can as well. But it was also important for me to have her twin brother Ollie in the mix as her foil, as the person who's sort of opposite her in a lot of ways. When I first started telling people that I was writing a book about twins, a lot of them would be like, really? Is that the best idea, Holly, since you're an only child? But actually it felt very natural for me to write something about that dynamic because it's something that I've always been absolutely fascinated by. I think because because I'm an only child. My best friend growing up had two younger siblings and I always used to find it incredibly uncomfortable to be in the same room with them all because they would snipe at each other and be really mean to each other but there was something going on that I couldn't quite reach you know if I had said any of the things that they were saying to each other to my best friend or if she had said any of those things to me that would be it that would be our friendship over in an instant but they could get away with it with each other because they knew that they had that underlying kind of unique sibling bond and it's the same thing with my husband he's got two much older brothers and they will ridicule each other and they've got really different opinions about a lot of things and I hate listening to them argue with each other but there's also something really really fascinating about it because they can get away with so much stuff that I don't think I could get away with saying to even my closest friends without it really causing a rift in our friendship so yeah I was really interested to put that into the book and to see how those two play off each other and and the things that they could do to each other and the way that they could push each other's buttons and get away with it and have to still be in each other's orbits because they're twins <laughs> they've got that irrevocable bond really that no matter how much they hate each other they they can't get away from it so I had I had I got that in place I got Fern and Ollie in place and I planned out a whole story for them. And then I think by about chapter two, I went completely off script with my plan, <laughs> having spent months deciding what was going to happen. And it was about a third of the way through my first draft with Ollie and Fern as, as the main characters that something was happening in the real world that started to feed into my writing. Something that I find I still find quite scary, that people were starting to become more extreme, not in lots and lots of different ways but mostly in terms of their opinions and kind of ideologies. And it was just sort of everything was polarising and people were finding it more and more difficult to, to see each other's point of views and people who were trying to mediate were getting kind of censored. And it's something that I really struggle with because I, I do have a tendency to see a lot of things in black and white and I hate arguing with people. So if... I come across someone who has a very different viewpoint to mine, I'll, I'll just kind of turn away and be like, ah, don't want to deal with it. Don't want to have this conversation. You're just wrong. I can't argue with someone who's just wrong. But it really started to make me think about how that could play out in the world of the book. Because we work a lot of things out in our subconscious when we're dreaming. And I was starting to wonder, well, if there's this army who protect us from our nightmares, then who else is in there? <laughs> 
Uh, and what are they doing? If you can give someone, if you can make someone have the same nightmare night after night, if, if you make them fear the same thing or the same person night after night after night, that's going to have an effect when they wake up. They're going to start subconsciously fearing that kind of thing in real life as well. I don't want to say too much more because then I'm going to go into spoiler territory, but that's that was the final piece of the puzzle for me when I was writing. And that's become, those things are kind of the overarching subjects of the trilogy. I suppose I've been influenced, well, by so many things. I think every writer is always influenced by all of the things that they've ever read or watched. My main ones, I think, are probably things like His Dark Materials or Neil Gaiman or the films of my childhood, like The Neverending Story that I loved and was also deeply traumatised by. When I started to show the book to people outside of my little bubble, um, someone said it was like a British Buffy or something that Joss Whedon might have written. And that was just the biggest compliment ever because I grew up on Buffy and I love it forever. I'm not one of those writers who can't read anything else while I'm writing. I think because for me, writing is quite a a drawn out process. That would mean that I would never read anything, which would be really sad. So I imagine that something from everything that I'm reading when I'm writing will make its way into my work somehow. At the moment, I'm reading... Viper by Bex Hogan, which is amazing and everyone should read it. And I'm annoyed with myself that it's taken me a year to get around to reading it now. And I'm also reading, well, rereading Emma by Jane Austen because someone told me that there's a clue somewhere in the novel about what happens to Mrs. Elton at the end. And I can't for the life of me figure out what they're talking about. So if you know, (laughs) please, can you tell me? (laughs) Just get in touch with me on on Twitter or Instagram or something because it's driving me crazy. I like to think that I've got a writing process, but I think I'm actually probably quite slapdash. I write mostly in cafes and pubs. Book one was actually mostly written in East London, which is where I was living at the time. And that's where Fern lives, Fern and Ollie live as well. I would walk the dog through West Ham Park and the Olympic Stadium and through Victoria Park. And then I'd sit in a pub for a couple of hours and have lunch and write. And then I'd walk the dog all the way back. And I find walking really helps me work out flaws and plot problems. And I can't write in silence or with music it has to have white noise in the background so sounds of people talking or eating really really helps me and that's been it's been interesting writing book two in lockdown because I have had to write in silence or with music and uh, that's not been fun (laughs) yeah so that's what I'm doing at the moment I'm I'm writing book two it feels very strange to be writing the second book when the first book is only just about to come out and I've no idea if anyone's going to like it. But I'm also having a lot of fun with book two. There was a few things in book one that I had to take out because they were sort of wide world building elements and they just didn't really have a place in the story. But actually they do really have a place in book two and I'm excited for people to get to know the larger world of Anun, which is the the name for the dream world. So I think that's that's it from me. If you like The Sound of Midnight's Twins, then do pre-order it. If you like complicated relationships and Arthurian and Celtic mythology and slightly dystopian villains in a slightly utopian world, then I hope you'd enjoy Midnight's Twins. If you have any questions, then I would love to hear from you. My Twitter is Ecarillo, which is my name, Holly Race, spelled backwards. My Instagram is holly underscore race. 
and my website is www.hollyrace.com. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good day. Midnight's Twins publishes on the 11th of June and you can pre-order it now online and from your local bookstore. Kerry Drury is the author of the Cell 7 trilogy published with Hotkey Books, the first of which was shortlisted for the Lancashire Library's Book of the Year 2018. The Last Paper Crane is her most recent novel, The Haunting Story of a Promise Made Long Ago, a powerful novel set in contemporary Japan and also in 1945 Hiroshima, the day the nuclear bomb was so devastatingly dropped on the city. Hello, my name is Kerry Drury and I'm the author of The Last Paper Crane, published with Hotkey Books, April the 2nd, 2020. It is so lovely to be here on the Hotkey podcast and thank you for joining me. So The Last Paper Crane is part set in modern day Japan and part set in Hiroshima immediately after the bomb was dropped in 1945. In the Hiroshima section, our character Ichiro promises to take care of his best friend's sister Kiko, but Kiko is a only five years old and the city is in ruins and fires are raging and there is little or no safety. The big question is, can Ichiro save her? Can he take care of her? And can he keep the promise he made? In present day, his granddaughter Mizuki realises something is wrong with him. Something is eating at him. He isn't the man he was and he no longer believes what he used to tell her that there is magic in books. She vows to help him and see if he can find some redemption. The title, The Last Paper Crane, comes from the Japanese myth that if you have the patience to fold a thousand paper cranes, then your wish will come true. And Ichiro folds these paper cranes throughout the novel until we reach the final one. But I won't tell you what happens with that final one because I don't want to spoil it for you. So the idea for The Last Paper Crane didn't come in a flash or suddenly walk into my head like many authors say. Instead, it was more of a slow build. Um, Growing up in the 80s, I remember the Cold War really well. Um, The looming threat, the infomercials. There were TV shows like Threads, uh, films like War Games. Um, And as a teen, it really affected me greatly. And the images that I saw of Hiroshima stayed in my mind um, as something that could happen to us or to anyone. Anything on nuclear war has always pricked my imagination and my conscience. Um, And then a few years ago, I read an article about Hiroshima and it recommended a book by John Hersey called Hiroshima. And I ordered that and devoured it um, and ordered more and just completely immersed myself in it. I had thought that I knew a lot about Hiroshima and what happened. And reading those, I realised that I I didn't, I really didn't. Um, And as I read more and more, watched more and more, and as the political landscape in the world changed and the threat started looming again, I just couldn't let go of the story. I researched it so much and I spoke to people both here here in the UK about their memories of the Cold War and growing up with that looming threat and people in Japan too who were very kind with their time and their advice. It was vital to me to get it right. There are no half measures with something like that Um, and you owe it to those people who were there who suffered it and their families too but also the writer owes it to you the reader. A famous writer once said and I wish I could remember who it was that books and authors should ask questions, not answer them. And that's what I hope for The Last Paper Crane, that it prompts readers to think 
and to question and to look into the past, make their own minds up and relate that to our futures. The last paper crane is also part written in prose, part written in free verse, and it has haiku interspersed throughout it too. And that was a a really slow choice as, as the novel developed. The middle section was always in prose. But I tried different things for the modern day sections. And thanks to the support of my ace editor, Emma Mathewson, I had the freedom to try different things with that and to think, oh, I'll give that a go and see if it works. And the time to do that as well. But I I love trying different forms of writing and pushing boundaries. And I really think good things happen when we close the rule book, not throw it away completely, but if we close it to see what happens. So that's all about The Last Paper Crane. So what I'm reading at the minute then, me as a reader, well, I've just finished reading The Hypnotist by Lawrence Anholt, which shamefully had been sitting on my bookshelf for ages, but it's one of those books that once you pick it up and you start reading it, you think, why didn't I start reading this ages ago? It's a wonderful story and I loved it to bits. And I would really recommend it. And I'm about to start The Game House by Claire North. Oh no, you can hear my cuckoo clock. Um, as for favourite books, well, I've read so many. And I think I think if you often ask readers what their favourite books are, it depends on the day and the mood. Um, but one of my all-time favourites is The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. And it's an old book. It was written in the 50s. Um, and it's a post-apocalyptic book about having to hide being different and not being accepted in society. And I've read it for my GCSE English and just loved it. And confession time, I actually didn't hand the book in when I finished it and kept the book and it's still sitting on my shelf now. I should really take it back, shouldn't I? But I think it's too late now. I also love Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. The ambition of it and and the difference of it, the experiments. Um, The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. Also, The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. And one whose structure really influenced The Last Paper Crane is Life and Exploded Diagram by Mal Peet, which, if you haven't read it, is just wonderful. And I remember reading that years ago and being inspired by the structure of it. It's in three sections. The structure of it and the ambition of it too. Why should you read The Last Paper Crane? Well, because it took me ages to write it. No, joking aside, um, because although it's set around Hiroshima, it's about more than that. It's about love and promises and family and friendships. And most of all, it's about hope. And I think all those things are things that everyone can relate to. And what's next? What am I writing now? Well, I love to experiment with form and with different forms of writing. And at the minute, I'm trying, trying being the important word there, to write something that would incorporate different aspects of storytelling. It might not go to plan. It might go hideously wrong. But then again, it might not. So I will give it a whirl and I will see what happens. So that's me. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me here on the Hotkey podcast. I do hope you're all well and thanks for listening. If you have any questions about The Last Paper Crane or about any of my other books, you can find me on Twitter at at Kerry Drury. The Last Paper Crane is currently available in paperback, ebook and audiobook and is available from all good bookshops online. I'm very excited to be introducing the fabulous Patrice Caldwell, who will be reading the introduction from Phoenix First Must Burn next.
Her anthology is a collection of 16 tales by best-selling, award-winning and emerging authors that explore the black female experience through fantasy, science fiction and magic. When I was 14, a family friend gifted me a copy of Octavia Butler's Wild Seed. I still remember that moment, the black woman on the front cover, the used paperback smell, the way I held it close like it carried within it secrets of many universes. I devoured it and all of her others. I found myself in her words, and I'm not the only one. It seems only fitting that the title of this anthology comes from Butler's Parable of the Talents, a novel that is ever relevant. The full quote is, in order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix first must burn. Storytelling is the backbone of my community. It is in my blood. My parents raised me on stories of real-life legends like Queen Nzinga of Angola, Harriet Tubman, Phyllis Wheatley, and Angela Davis. Growing up in the American South, my world was full of stories of traditions and superstitions like eating black-eyed peas on New Year's Day for luck or jumping the broom on your wedding day. Raised on a diet of Twilight Zone, Star Trek, and Star Wars, I preferred creating and exploring fictional universes to living in my real one. But whenever I went to the children's section of the library to discover more tales, the novels featuring characters who looked like me were, more often than not, rooted in pain set amid slavery, sharecropping, or segregation. Those narratives are important, yes, but because they were the only ones offered, I started to wonder, where is my fantasy, my future? Why don't Black people exist in speculative worlds? Too often, media focuses on our suffering. Too often, we are portrayed as victims. But in reality, we advocate for and save ourselves long before anyone else does. From heroes my parents taught me of to recent ones like Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tamati, the Black women who founded Black Lives Matter. Malcolm X said, the most neglected person in America is the black woman. I believe that this is even more true for my fellow queer siblings, and especially for those identified as trans and gender nonconforming. We are constantly under attack. And yet, still we rise from our own ashes. We never accept no. With each rebirth comes a new strength. Black women are phoenixes. We are given lemons and make lemonade. So are the characters featured in this collection of stories. These 16 stories highlight black culture, folktales, strength, beauty, bravery, resistance, magic, and hope. They will take you from a ship-carrying teens who are Earth's final hope for salvation to the rugged wilderness of New Mexico's frontier. They will introduce you to a revenge-seeking hairstylist, a sorcerer's apprentice, and a girl whose heart is turning to ash. And they will transport you to a future where all outcomes can be predicted by the newest tech, even matters of the heart. Though some of these stories contain sorrow, they ultimately are full of hope. Sometimes you have to shed who you were to become who you are. As my parents used to remind me, Black people have our pain, but our futures are limitless. Let us together embrace our power. Let us create our own worlds. Let us thrive. And so our story begins. You can visit Patrice online at patricecaldwell.com, on Twitter at whimsicallyyours, and Instagram at whimsicalaquarian. And A Phoenix First Must Burn is available to buy online now. Next up, we have the very knowledgeable Amy Lambias on the podcast to speak to you about a day in the life of a book marketeer, taking risks and the changing landscape of the publishing industry. Hello, my name is Amy Lambias and I'm the Senior Marketing Manager for Bonnier Books UK Children's. That includes Hockey Books, Piccadilly Press, Templar Publishing, Big Picture Press and Studio Press. This ranges from baby ball books all the way up to YA and is across fiction and non-fiction. I actually started at Bonnier four and a half years ago and I started in adult non-fiction as a marketing and publicity assistant. 
I then was offered an opportunity to get into editorial, which I took. I became editorial assistant for Blink, which was our non-fiction celebrity imprint. I was there for quite a while. I worked my way up to assistant editor. And then I was offered a job at Studio Press, which was our trend and brand imprint for children's. Uh, I was an editor at Studio Press for a year and a half. Uh, And then I was offered the opportunity to get back into marketing and be the marketing manager across Studio, Templar, Big Picture Press. Uh, And very recently, uh, my role has actually expanded to include Hotkey and Piccadilly as well. So I've kind of been all around the houses, a bit of mixture in between adult and children's. Um, I love both, but uh, I absolutely love the role that I'm in now and I wouldn't change it for anything. We are a very small team. We only have three people in the marketing team. So we have myself. We have Izzy, who is our creative and marketing assistant. She's in charge of all of the design for our imprints. So any of the assets that we need, POS, anything like that. She is also in charge of all of our incredible social media. So if you guys have been keeping abreast of the Hotkey or Templar channels during lockdown, Izzy's been doing a fantastic job on that. Emma is um, the other team member. Emma is actually new to Bonnie Books UK. She joined us from Macmillan. Um, She is our senior marketing exec and she's doing a fantastic job. Um, So we're very, very small, but we pack a powerful punch. Um, And the great thing about being part of our team and working at Bonnier is the flexibility that we have within the marketing department. So one day we could be working on a baby board book campaign or a picture book, and at the same time working on a YA fiction novel. We also, as I said, um, work across fiction and nonfiction, which is great. And the role really is quite diverse. So one day I could be working on an Amazon marketing campaign or a digital marketing campaign. The next day I could be planning an event such as the With the Fire and High pop up or a possible fairy ball that we're looking at doing in the autumn. It really is a varied role. And I think that's one of the parts of my job that I love the most is that you just never know what's around the corner. A typical day for me really is varied. I am obviously checking my emails, uh, especially right now during lockdown where meetings are a lot fewer, which is great. But I will be planning campaigns that we've got in the autumn. At the moment, I've been moving quite a few campaigns into the autumn. I will be briefing in assets or social media campaigns or plans, negotiating rates with our suppliers, booking in advertising. At the moment, also assisting PR in terms of sending out materials, press releases, converting things to digital. My day-to-day really does vary um, very much on the time of year, what books we have coming out, whether or not it's creating author video content, Amazon stores, filling out spreadsheets, budgets, you name it, we do it. I can't forget invoicing either. That's a big part of my job, invoicing and approving invoices. The other part of my job, which I love, is actually the managing side of things. So I've already spoken about the team, but just checking in on them, making sure that they're okay. Um, Obviously, this is a bit of a different situation right now um so you know it wouldn't be that we can just have a one-on-one or, or a cup of tea um in the kitchen or even go out for um, a lunch so it's very much a zoom call but I do love um our zoom chats and our marketing catch-ups um, and actually managing is probably one of the nicest parts of my job getting to know the girls and helping them with their career development um, and also just 
really developing the hockey Piccadilly template team um, and really pushing our books and our titles as far as we can go. I think another challenge at the moment as part of my job is making sure that all of our formats for all of our titles are advertised. So obviously we've seen a huge uplift in audio and ebook sales, but we don't want physical to drop off either. So really just trying to manage expectations across all of our titles and all of our formats and give our authors and illustrators justice for their work really um, and making sure that despite coronavirus and lockdown and sometimes our typical um, distribution channels um, or even just our campaigns having to change and making sure that they still feel loved and that we are doing the best for their books during this time. I've been at Bonnier for a while now and there's been some major um, highlights during my time here. Uh, in terms of career highlights, I think one of them would be the with the Fire and High pop-up I did last year. It was certainly a challenge, but one that I loved. We actually acquired the book in July and the pop-up was in September. So it was quite a quick turnaround in terms of the entire campaign. We didn't have much time and actually at that time I was a one-woman team so Izzy and Emma hadn't arrived yet so it was very much um, all on my shoulders as it were but I loved the challenge the pop-up was incredible it went really really well and Elizabeth was gutted to not attend but I think it really made a stamp of how much we value her as an author and how we think outside the box you know we're not just going to do some bunting or some outdoor advertising we really want to push boundaries and and come up with some creative campaigns that haven't been done before it was actually the first pop-up shop and mural for a YA title in the UK which was an exciting thing um, to do and be a part of. Obviously I had the support from the girls in PR and our sales director Kate but yeah it was very much a challenge and one that I loved um, and I think it really worked out in the end as well. I mean sometimes you take risks with campaigns that's part of marketing you know it's to be creative uh, and they don't always pay off but this one really did in terms of putting us on the map again and you know really making sure that hockey retains its identity as as doing things different so yeah I was really really pleased with that another highlight from my time here was attending Bonnie Books AB event in Sweden uh, that was a real major highlight for me and I was privileged to have been chosen to attend we saw some major entrepreneurs speak and give advice and it was all about technology and development and where we think the publishing landscape will go. Obviously, none of us could have predicted the pandemic, but it was fascinating and just seeing so many inspiring people talk it really did hit home with me and encourage me to take some own risks when I got back to the UK I think the other thing that I loved about the trip was actually even though I knew Bonnier Books UK was part of a bigger Bonnier family seeing it is very very different to just hearing about it the history at Sweden being part of this heritage and it's so much bigger out there as well. I mean, it's a media company. They have magazines. They're leading the way in terms of audio. But also they are leading the way in terms of research. So they are doing neurological research, looking at the way that the brain communicates and receives and perceives advertising. There's some incredible things that they're doing and it was fantastic to see that firsthand. I think the future of advertising is a really interesting thing to look at with the developments in AI and also just technology in itself, what we are developing right now, how books are evolving and our products are evolving, but also 
how the digital landscape is evolving. You know, Tony Stark in Avengers, his headset seems like such a far off thing, but it's really not. Eventually, we will just have a digital landscape. The things that neuroscientists are also looking at right now, telepathy and putting the internet in the brain, which seems like some kind of dystopian novel, but it really is actually our future. So I think being a part of a career and also, especially with marketing, having the fluidity and the freedom to adapt campaigns and to look at this new research and to see how our environment is going to develop, especially on the back of this pandemic. How are we going to retain information? How are our shopping habits going to change? What's our preference going to be in terms of actually, whether it's listening, reading, buying books, what is going to be the future of publishing? And I think we have to evolve and think about new ways of getting our books and our titles to our consumers. So I I think it's a really interesting time to be a, a marketer right now and just to keep abreast of the publishing landscape as well as the political landscape and see where we're going to end up but it's great to I guess be a part of this in whatever capacity you can whether that's very small and just you know adapting a title um, a campaign or whether it's actually looking at the way that you operate within the business and looking at your websites. Do we have to rely on these big retailers? Should we be looking at going direct to consumers through our own sites? What's the future of retail? I mean, is the high street dead? Is money dead now? Is it just going to be you know digital payments? Indies, I, I hope to God that they recover from this and that they keep on fighting the fight because they are fantastic. But you know, we have, I, I think everybody has looked at Amazon and with the buy buttons fluctuating and stock levels fluctuating and we've had to turn to other ways of, of distributing our books and the indies have absolutely been fantastic at that waterstones as well moving their uh, operation online wh smith as well i mean they've seen increases of around 300 400 percent in terms of online sales i just think it's a very very interesting time to work within the publishing industry and also as a marketeer and I can only imagine what the future holds uh, but it's an incredible incredible time to be a part of it. I think if I was going to give anybody some advice in terms of career development or what they want out of their career it would be to take risks take opportunities that come your way even if it's you know something that's completely out of character for you or out of your comfort zone I think you only get anywhere in life by taking a risk and taking a challenge. And and if you fail, okay, you failed, but you learn from your mistakes. Every experience is a lesson learned. And like with campaigns, I think you have to push yourself. You have to look at doing things outside of the box. I mean, yes, okay, everyone can do social media advertising and some budgets really do (laughs) limit your creativity. But when you do have the opportunity, whether it's just having more time on your hands or whether it is having more capital, look at uh, ways that you can push boundaries. Look at ways of making your book stand out from a crowd. But don't just look at it from a campaign perspective. Also look at it from yourself. If you were going to market yourself, how would you do it? What would you do? How do you put yourself uh, in the best light to future employers? I really do think a lot of people are going to be reassessing their lives during this time. Everyone's got a lot more time on their hands. Work-life balance has certainly changed. And I think a lot of people will be making career choices now, which will affect their future, but also, you know, affect your colleagues' futures and your employers' futures. So, I, yeah, I really think now is the time to take risks, to be creative, whether that's 
starting a YouTube channel or, or, you know, creating a new hobby or even running Couch to 5K, um, which myself and the team are doing. And I never saw myself as a runner, but I'm actually really enjoying it and finding it therapeutic. So I think push yourself, take a risk and hope it pays off. So one more thing from me before I go is what I'm reading right now. So uh, I could definitely recommend some hockey books that are coming up. Ray Bearer was absolutely fantastic. If you guys haven't seen this yet, you definitely should check it out. The cover is beautiful, but also the story is just fabulous. Um, It's a West African-inspired fantasy series. It's definitely one of the best books I've read this year. Obviously, I can't not talk about Elizabeth Acevedo, her new book, Clap New Land. Yes, it is my campaign, and I am definitely advertising it right now, but it is absolutely out of this world. Everything this woman writes is just filled with heart and passion, and this book is in verse, so not something I typically would pick up, to be honest with you, through my own reading habits, but I absolutely loved it. I couldn't put it down. And it's one of those books that I did read in one sitting and it's worth every second of your time. Also, if you haven't checked out Elizabeth, I completely recommend that you do. She's got an amazing website and you can see some of her poetry slam on there. The woman is completely inspiring and definitely a girl crush. So please do check her out. We have so many great books, not just on the hockey list, but Templar, Piccadilly, Studio Press. I mean, we are really, really publishing some fantastic stuff. Big Picture Press has got the Welcome to the Museum series and it is gorgeous so for all of you guys that are homeschooling right now and or want to go to see some of these museums i really recommend that you check out these books the series is just fantastic and it's as brilliant internally as it is on the cover so do check that out in terms of non bonnier books uk titles that i'm reading I just read Crescent City by Sarah J Mass. I read everything that she does. She's fantastic. Uh, I also just read The Switch by Beth O'Leary. Uh, I would say that my reading habits do tend towards the romantic, I guess you could say. I'm a sucker for a happy ending. If it's sad, I really do struggle. I didn't make the best editor when it came to receiving anything that was really misery memoir. But yeah, I, I love most books, to be honest with you. If I'm not reading, I don't know what I'm doing. Probably watching some awful TV show on Netflix. But yeah, so that's a little bit about me and what I'm reading and who I am. So please do subscribe to the Hotkey podcast. Is has done such a fantastic job about pulling all this together. Enjoy it and thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. If you're a Hotkey fan, you can also subscribe to the Hotkey mailing list. All of the details about that can be found in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. This month's audio extract is from Clap When You Land, the second poignant, powerful and passionate dual narrative novel in verse from the 2019 Carnegie Medal winning author of The Poet X and With the Fire on High, Elizabeth Acevedo. Separated by distance and Pappy's secrets, Two girls are forced to face a new reality in which their father is dead and their lives are forever altered. But when it seems like they've lost everything of their father, they learn of each other. Inspired by the real-life event of the American Airlines flight 587, Clap When You Land is about the devastation of loss, 
the difficulty of forgiveness and the bittersweet bonds that shape our lives. I replay that moment again and again, circle it like a plane in a holding pattern. How that morning, on the fifth day of June, the worst thing I could imagine was being lectured for my progress report or getting another nudge to return to the chess club. I didn't know then that three hours before, as I'd arrived at school, before lunch or Dre or the long walk down the school hallway, the door to my old life slammed shut. When I walk into the office, Mommy is here, wearing chancletas, her hair in rollers, and that's the move that telegraphs the play. Mommy manages a nice spa uptown and says her polished appearance is advertisement. She never leaves the house anything less than Miss Universe Perfect. The principal's assistant, Miss Santos, comes from around her desk, puts an arm around my shoulders. She looks like she's been weeping. I want to shake her arm off, want to shove her back to her desk. That arm is trying to tell me something I don't have the stomach to hear. I don't want her comfort, don't want mommy here or anything about what's to come. I take a breath the way I used to before I walked into a room where every single person wanted to see me lose. Ma? When she looks at me, I notice her eyes are red and puffy, her bottom lip quivers, and she presses the tips of her fingers there as if to create a wall against the sob that threatens. She answers, Tu papi. The flight, papi was on departs, without incident on most days, I'm told, leaves from JFK International Airport and lands in Puerto Plata in exactly three hours and 36 minutes. Routine, I'm told, a routine flight with the same kind of plane that flies in daily and gets a mechanical check and had a veteran pilot and should have landed fine. Mommy says the panic hit most of the waiting families at the same time. Here, in New York, with the Atlantic refereeing between us, we knew much earlier. Thirty minutes after the plane departed, it was reported that the tail had snapped, that like some fishing, hunting creature, the jet plunged into the water, completely vertical, hungry for only God knows what. Pray sank. I sign myself out of school, ignore Miss Santos's condolences. Mommy is still crying. We walk to my locker. I leave my books in the cafeteria. Mommy is still crying. I leave school without saying goodbye to Dre. Mommy can't stop crying. Mr. Henry waves. I wave back. Outside, the day is beautiful. Mommy cries. The sun is shining, the breeze a soft touch along my face. Mommy is still crying. It's almost as if the day has forgotten. It's stolen my father. Or maybe it's rejoicing at its gain. Mommy is still crying. But my eyes, they remain dry.
I learn via text, I am one of four students at school who have been called to the office because of the flight. In the neighborhood, las vecinas are on their stoops, in their batas and chancletas, everyone trying to learn what the TV may not know. Who was on the flight? Is it true everyone is dead? Was it terrorist? A conspiracy de por allá? The government? When the women call out to mommy, she does not turn her head their way. We walk from the school to our apartment as if we are the ones who have been made ghosts. 